Welcome to another episode of Found, a conversation at the intersection of Christian faith and culture, where we always aim to find Jesus in the way we react and respond to our world. Found is part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. My name is Linda Tokar, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Brandon Bathauer. Attachment is the strongest force in the human brain. It's not an emotion. It's something, it's something you feel, you sense it. Uh, and it runs very deep in your brain. But the thing is, it's below your willful control. So our personal attachments to Jesus and others have a more powerful effect on our behavior than anything we could do. For us to be loving, what does that look like? And it gets confounded with sort of this cultural decision that has been made that any outside value system is an imposition, not an invitation. As followers of Jesus, we have a major decision to make. Are we going to continue to walk with culture down this road? Are we going to be afraid to call people to what is better, to lift up Jesus' standard of life and living? Hey, Brandon. Well, hey again, Linda. Here we are. So excited to be with you. This is going to be fun. Yeah, we've got quite the exciting second part Yes, coming up. Yes, and we are joined once again by our friend Rob Jacobs. Hey, Rob. Hey, everybody. Thanks the for having sage. me back. The Sage. The Sage. Yes. We, yes. I think we said the boss was not the title that you wanted unless it was it Bruce Springsteen. so aggressive. I mean, <laughs> Bruce. The Bruce, man. All right. I'm a child of the 80s, so I'm good with Bruce Springsteen. Bruce. But the right? boss. Come on. I guess just a boss versus the boss. It's the definite article that really leads to Bruce Springsteen, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Moving along. Moving on. (laughs) So today we are finishing our conversation that we started last time around the topic of how we change and grow. So last time we looked at three perspectives. The first was this idea that information equals transformation. The second, we kind of called do the right thing and it was just about the fact that transformation comes as we do and as we act out our faith and then the third is power to the people and so we talked in detail about those three views now this episode that you're about to hear will make a whole lot more sense if you listen to that one first so if you haven't listened yet i invite you to hit pause right now go listen to that one and come on back we'll be here when you get back But for now, let's dive in. All right, so here we are. We basically walked through those three viewpoints all around this question of how do we grow and how do we change? If we want to grow as people, if we want to change as people into people with greater character, how do we do that? And... uh, Previously, in the previous episode, we basically walked through a bit of a history, kind of starting in Enlightenment times and leading right up to the present. And that was on purpose because here we are at a present moment, and I think we are facing a very important crossroads about which direction we are going to go, what viewpoint and set of philosophical values are we going to grab hold of and enter into when it comes to what we do uh, as Christians, what we do as Jesus followers, what we do as a society about how we grow. Uh, just to, to kind of walk through this again, we, we started with like the Enlightenment philosophers 
some of the greatest thinking, I think, in, in human history. Uh, people like Descartes and Kant and uh, Hume and uh, Blaise Pascal, a favorite of mine. And what the hope was, was, man, if we can just get there in our thinking, if we can just get enough information and enough knowledge, then we will be able to change as individuals, as a society. We will grow. We will progress. That's the solution. And there was some really good writing. And I spent a lot of money in school studying (laughs) these people. And it was fantastic. Now, at the same time, as these Enlightenment philosophers were writing all this stuff, you know what's happening in society is you still had the mass enslavement of large portions of the human race. And if you look at the personal lives of a lot of these philosophers, it was a mess. Yeah. And so this idea, this promise that like if we just get the right information, we as a society, we as individuals can change. It's like, ah, that's, that's not quite getting there. It's an incomplete picture. And then, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, we kind of moved to like if you just make the right decisions, if you can write, build the right systems and processes and you exercise your will enough then you'll be able to change and the industrial revolution was really good in so many ways Mm -hmm. i mean we stand on the shoulders of a lot of these initial thinkers and doers from that age but it didn't change us much as individuals or us as a society i mean out of the industrial revolution we made some of the greatest weapons of mass violence uh, ever in history. And I think the 20th century, correct me if I'm wrong, the 20th century, more people were killed in war than any other human Mm -hmm. century before. Uh, So, dude, that's not working either. So we can get all the life hacks, we can use our will, we can make the right decisions, but man, it's not moving us forward as individuals, it's not moving us forward as a a society. It's like we've got two steps forward, one step back, three steps back. And, and so then, moving more into our modern era, there was this promise of, like, if I can just connect to a power that is higher than me, mm-hmm. some stuff is going to change. Society is going to get better. Me as an individual, we're going to get better. So let's lean more into uh, spiritualism. Let's lean into political parties and big kind of economic movements. And that is what will better the world and better me. And let's be honest, let's look around. Yeah. <laughs> we are more divided and hateful because we've tried to find our identity in these larger circles. And if you look at yourself, you're probably more angry. You suddenly hate your neighbor right. <laughs> because they're in a part of a different tribe or something. And we rage read. I've read that recently, this, mm. this idea of like rage reading. I've never thought of reading as rageful, but <laughs> that's what we've entered into now, right? You yeah. haven't read Twitter then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the rage read. Um, so that's what comes when we try these, these ways of growing. So we talked in the previous episode, they are good things, but they are an incomplete picture. Yeah. It's like you focus on the wrong thing and the whole picture ends up being out of composition. So what do we do? This is the crossroads we're at. Uh, I think in the American Western imagination, we've landed on this, this question. What if the problem is not our methods to growing, but what if it's just trying to grow in general? What if our hope for progress is the problem? So what if instead of continuing to try to grow and change and transform ourselves and the society that we're a part of, 
What if our hope is just to radically accept things for whatever they are? That's kind of the direction yeah. I think we're heading, right? And it's a society where we intentionally don't try to grow. We don't want or try to change. And if we can just tolerate and then accept and celebrate the status quo, whatever we are right now, then that will create this world of tolerance. And finally, having given up on this hope of progress and improvement and growth, maybe we'll finally have peace because mm. we've given up on that. And and so this shows up in our society now, right? Again, when I say our society, I know there are a lot of microcultures and stuff, but go to a coffee house and listen to somebody around you and you'll inevitably hear some phrase like, you do you. Mm-hmm. Just accept me for who I am. They just don't accept me for who I am. Don't push your views on me. Right? This, this is kind of in the water now because we've seen the problems with power in the previous sphere of history. And so what we want to do is don't push anything on me. We're all going to just radically accept ourselves just as right. we are. Don't be, don't be difficult on yourself. Don't try to hold some value or some goal in front of you. That will wound you in the long run because growth and change is just, it's not really possible. And so, again, the greatest moral in this is not pressing your views on anyone else. Now, right. I was thinking about a way to summarize this view. Mm-hmm. And you know what came to mind? Don't do it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to go there. All right. You guys see it in the notes. Yeah. <laughs> Frozen. I implore you to stop. We're going there. <laughs> <laughs> so you have here in uh, Frozen, I've seen it uh, a couple times now. You have a little girl, so. I do. She's not watched it yet. Um, but, you know, it's in the, it's in the, it's, it's in the water. Okay. And All so. Right. We'll give uh, you that. So what what you have going on is you have Elsa, this uh, this queen who has this like this gifting slash challenge or whatever, right. and the the storyline is basically that she's supposed to just like hold it in, you know, don't don't be that person, be something different, grow and mature, and don't use that power. And the the picture is kind of this like, you know what? I'm gonna just let it go. I'm going to just be who I am, and y'all better accept it. And it starts with this picture of, like, a world of isolation is the right. first first lyric, which I think is really powerful. That foreshadows, I think, a little bit about where this will go. But listen to this. This is a phrase that is echoes in your head and echoes in everyone's head in yeah. the American culture now. It says, it's funny how some distance makes everything seem so small, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. You guys are hearing it now. I thought you'd sing it. I know. I was thinking about it, but um, I don't want to get, like, super celebrity status, so you got to draw the line somewhere, you know? That's wise. Thank you. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits breakthrough, and then listen to this. There's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Mm-hmm. And that's the promise, I think, of the world of tolerance, is right. to say, look, can we just stop this whole idea of there's right and there's wrong, there's better and there's worse, if we can just get rid of all of that, mm-hmm. you know, we'll have freedom. If we can just get rid of the rules that these these bigger goals that will lead me to want to try harder, or if we drop all of that, the solution will be peace and freedom. And coming out of sort of the really divisive times that we've just come out of, you know, the last, say, two, three years, it's no wonder that people are craving peace. 
people are like, what do we have to do? Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? And the solution is, I just need freedom. And so if it means (laughs) a world of isolation, no rules, no right, no wrong, I'm free. So that's, I think, the water that we're swimming in. I hope you're like, oh, yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. Let's do what we normally do, which is to dive a little bit beneath the kind of cultural reality and say, what are the philosophical kind of groundings that make up this viewpoint? What's in the groundwater that is kind of showing up in these plants? Yeah, a helpful frame for this might be the work of Philip Reith, philosopher, who says that basically right now we're in the age of what he calls psychological man. So he walks kind of this picture through uh, the changes that have happened in humanity. He, he argues that first we are political man and that um, that set the ideal of those things that we kind of talked about maybe in the last episode with Plato and Aristotle. Um, and these were the people who engaged in, in the public life, the life of the polis. And that then moved into the idea of um, becoming like a religious, the the, the religious man who enters into the world of spirituality. And then that moves to the, a modern, a more modern sense of the economic man. And this is the individual who finds itself worth in the economy, the economic trade, production, making money. But we've now moved into this place that he calls the psychological man. Um, and it's a type characterized not so much by finding our identity in the outward directed activities. So if you think about the ones I just mentioned, the political man, the religious man, and the economic man. Those were outward-directed activities, and it was the things outside of you that defined you. But he says now what the difference is is that the the psychological man is on an inward quest for psychological Mm -hmm. happiness. Mm -hmm. And so then in response to this, uh, um, a modern current um, Christian philosopher, Carl Truman, wrote um, that the Reformation made the individual conscious a central feature of the Christian faith, and the Enlightenment's emphasis on individual autonomy dovetailed together with this emphasis on the individual consciousness. So then let's go back to some of those people we talked about in, the, in our first episode. So the Enlightenment philosopher Immanuel Kant, who emphasized the importance of reason and rationality, and so that humans should use their reason and judgment to determine the right course of action. So again, not something exterior to them, but literally they themselves in their own reason and judgment, are making those decisions. So on that, just to clarify, so uh, Kant would say it's it's within that uh, it's in my own reason and rationality that I decide what's right and wrong. It's not necessarily some objective reality, which that's is a huge... It's huge. That's a massive change in yep. the way humanity mm-hmm. would have thought of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then building on this, someone like John Locke, who's like... You know, tolerance is so necessary because people have different opinions. Sure, that's good. Um, and then, but this, now you see where this comes into the modern day, but it's it's important that everyone be allowed to express th- their opinions freely. Yes. I think as we're seeing now is like, but my opinion becomes my truth, and therefore you have to accept my truth. Right. And it's no longer an opinion. Um, and so, again, this is the idea that Reef's talking about psychological man. Um the, the Isaiah Berlin, a social and political theorist, said that the notion of the individual as the ultimate source of authority is central to the liberal political theory. So, again, you can see this building. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a feminist philosopher and writer who famously talks about that one is not born but rather becomes a woman. So, mm-hmm. meaning that this is where they're talking about gender not being an innate characteristic but a social construction. So, whether you, wherever you're at on that issue... 
what the point is that these philosophers are starting to say that you find who you are inside of yourself. You find the truth inside of yourself. And this is a change from what would have been previously in found in, like, say, the political man or the economic mm-hmm. man um, and the religious man. Those things, there was a bar, there was a standard that right. things were held up against. Now that bar and standard is simply you. Right, which is completely subjective, and nobody can challenge that because it's it's internal to you, so it makes it very difficult to have conversation. Yeah. Derrida, another philosopher, wrote, the other insofar as he is other is not only a challenge to my autonomy and my powers, but he may also be the very condition of the exercise of my own powers. Wow. So... <coughs> Commenting on some of these philosophers above, there's another modern-day um, Christian philosopher, Charles Taylor, and he's responding to this, ex- what he calls expressive individualism, that each of us finds our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. And for Taylor, this kind of self exists in what he describes as a culture of authenticity. So, like, usually we think, oh, authenticity, we love that world, right? That's a, it's such a great thing. But he defines it this way, is that, the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. We have our own way of realizing our humanity. And that is it important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or by a previous generation or religious or political activity. So in other words, Taylor is seeing how we've cast off many of the things that Reef describes. We're casting off these outside authorities, these outside bars and measures of what should be true and real for a person, and we're simply making it up on our own and going alone on our own. Yeah, and you can see, you can see why we've gotten to this point as a kind of in our social thinking um, is that, again, with uh, knowledge and then with the, like, life hacks to making a better life and putting these habits into place as you, I think as people have tried that and felt like, man, that didn't quite get me to the character change I wanted. Well, it's because it's somebody else's definition of good that's being imposed on me. That's right. Mm -hmm. It's someone's outside definition of character. Right. And man, if I can't like, those are all unattainable. And then we go to the power structures where it's like, okay, we're going to rely on whatever power is gr- greater than us to define that. And then we go, gosh, you know, my my political party or my my ethnic community or whatever, that has presented something that I can't achieve either. And so, you know what? Like, I got to just, I got to end with just myself, complete autonomy. And if we can all have complete autonomy, well, then aren't we all going to get along? And won't we be able to achieve whatever goals we set? That I myself know what is good and what is bad. Yeah, which, I mean, let's be honest. Let's jump back to what happened in the garden, that this is what Adam and Eve do, right? right? They, they grasp for the, for the tree of knowing of good and bad. They're, they're grabbing that for themselves. If I mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. hold in my own hand the power of deciding what is good and bad, well, then I will be like God. Uh, that was the promise of the serpent, and here we are, just real deep into that fruit. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's. I mean, let's. I mean, we've jumped. We just jumped to scripture pretty fast. Yeah. But uh, you can see why this feels like a crossroads right now. We haven't presented the other road yet. We will, um, in the second half of this episode. 
But we're at a crossroads. Are we going to continue to walk down this road? And I hope you can hear in this some very positive and good things. We're going to dive into that in this view. The idea of loving people as they are. Absolutely. The idea of acceptance. The idea of getting along in a society. I mean, all political writers have been trying to get at that goal. Um, But I hope we can see the major pitfalls that come as we continue to walk down this road. I think even as followers of Jesus, we have a major decision to make. Are are we going to continue to walk with culture down this road the way we did with the previous viewpoints? That as these Enlightenment philosophers say, information is everything, we think all we need to do is just give more information to our people. And then we lean into it's the power of the will and the right decisions. Okay, all we have to do is just train people on the right decisions. Right. And then the power systems, and now here we are again at this crossroads. Are we going to be afraid to call people to what is better? Are we going to be afraid to lift up Jesus' standard of life and living? Right, and I think one of the challenges is that as this view has kind of worked its way through the water of our society, when we as the church when we call somebody to change or when we hold up a better or an ideal or a value that is contrary to any way, I mean, any way that a person is living, it feels not like an invitation to something better. It feels like it feels intolerant. It feels insensitive. It feels unloving. And those are the claims or the accusations that are leveled at the church. And so when, so sometimes in an effort to be loving, we just stop asking. Mm. We just say, okay, you know. <laughs> and we, we back down. And because we want to be loving, God is love. Jesus is supposed to be love. You know what I mean? So for us to be loving, what does that look like? And it gets confounded with sort of this cultural decision that has been made that any outside value system is an imposition, not an invitation. Ooh, that'll tweet. <laughs> hashtag something. <laughs> yeah, you and I don't tweet, Rob, so there are no hashtags for us. Oh, man. No, Rob has a substantial Twitter following, y'all. Um, better than my seven followers. So <laughs> I, I think in this place, what, what the tendency to do, right, is we present a gospel mm-hmm. where we say Jesus accepts you as you are, which he does. Uh, and we highlight that and we value that. And we forget about the second part of it, which is, but he, he loves you too much to leave you that way. Right. And that part we get as quiet as possible uh, because the first part is like, man, we now as a society are celebrating that like crazy. He just accepts you as you are. Everyone mm-hmm. is welcome. Anyone come on in. Yeah. We love you. You will be embraced. Which is true. Which right. is absolutely, absolutely without a doubt true. But like we've talked about in this image uh, with this picture idea, like you so emphasize a point that the rest of the composition gets thrown off. What it means to lovingly accept someone. Mm -hmm. Uh, I lovingly accepted my daughter when she was born into our family. All the problems, all the challenges. But I love her too much to just, right now we're potty training. So like Mm -hmm. I love her too much to just be like, well, you just, you do you, you know? Figure it out, and uh, you know, good luck in the in the workforce. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> right? Like, uh, no. yeah. 
it, it's love. It believe me, it takes a lot of love to potty train. And uh, goodness sakes, I love her too much to just right. say go for it. I don't know. Figure it out. You do you. Just be connected with yourself. And I don't want to impose any type of standards on you. Right. I mean, when you say it like that, it's obviously ridiculous. And yet, isn't that how we act sometimes? You know? Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, let's be honest. If you just play with this in our normal cultural vernacular right now, it'd be like, how dare you force your Western Enlightenment views on the use of sewage systems and potties on this two-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah, she doesn't want to do that. Yeah, if she doesn't want to, you're forcing this upon... Like, do you see all the power I mean, dynamics? Is, yeah. and the, It's violence. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? And, and goodness sakes, like, you're right. It seems like the common sense of this reality is, man, this is a loving father and mother trying right. to set up this person for a better and thriving life. Mm -hmm. But that has become taboo. That has become looked down upon. Um, Yeah, and and that's a bit of the world that we're living in right now. Well, and I think you make a really interesting point. The the correction and the direction are coming from a loving mother and father. And as followers of Jesus, the correction that we receive comes from a loving heavenly father. And that's where that, that... standard and the and you know what we're aiming at comes from him it's not inside us it's something that he is guiding us towards and so that's right just yeah so just like with potty training like you gotta help ray and she's gonna mess it up and then you love her and you keep moving her forward i mean that's right yeah yeah so you know again in this viewpoint and then we'll dig into a couple things that i think jesus has to say about this um you know, the evil in this viewpoint is projecting better on anyone else, um, challenging anyone towards better, even yourself. Because sometimes, even when you place goals in front of yourself, I don't know if you've experienced this, but you're talking to a friend and you're like, man, I just need to be better at that. What is always the first response? You're great at that. Yeah. Don't you put those standards on yourself? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I could keep getting fatter and die, or I could <laughs> lose some weight. Why don't you love me enough to be like, yeah. Why don't you go running a little bit, man? Uh, lay off the chocolate. So I just ate a chocolate, so that's why I was in my uh, mind. I was like, uh, leave chocolate out of this. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the reasons that that's such an evil is that if, again, like Rob was saying, if what is right and wrong is defined within me and you are presenting a different standard of what is right and wrong and you're even saying that that is some objective reality, something outside of me, what you're doing is you're challenging me at an identity level. Yeah, right down to the root of who I am, we in this world are becoming our own gods. And the second you say there's something objective, there's something outside of you, yeah. you're now saying you're no longer God. And that challenges us at an identity level. Um, I think the idol in that exactly is this inner well-being. It's this, well, I feel good with myself. That's mm-hmm. the idol mm-hmm. of what it is. And um, if you remember being an adolescent, Growing is not comfortable, yeah. right? And so, like, they call them growing pains. That's right. Yeah, I I know one dude who like grew so fast that he felt pain in his legs, like he got stretch marks on his legs because he was growing so fast in such a short period of time, like a bamboo shoot. You know, uh, I didn't have that problem, but uh, <laughs> the the idol in this viewpoint is I just always need to feel good in myself. Well, and our whole culture tells you that. I yeah. mean, 
everything in marketing is you need to feel good. And if you have any discomfort at all, you need to alleviate it immediately. Yeah. I mean, and that's a lot of times for physical things, but emotionally as well. It's like, do what you have to do to not feel pain, not feel suffering, not feel uncomfortable. And isn't it weird that we have a bit of this oil and water reality of our culture right now where we're like, you know, so much of the messaging is that. And then you'll see some ad for a gym and or like some new diet or something. And that goes right back to the try harder, build these habits into your life. And it's such a weird fusion of this world that we're in because after the last episode, I just kept seeing these different viewpoints showing mm-hmm. up on my feeds or in conversations. And it, the challenge is, man, we are just bouncing around between these different philosophical viewpoints. And uh, they are, in many ways, they clash with each other. Mm-hmm. And if you pay attention just beneath the surface, you start to notice, well, these are saying two completely different things with completely different views of humanity, with completely different value sets. So, um, so yes, I, I, I think uh, in that story of Jesus loves you and accepts you for who you are, but loves you too much to leave you that way. Yeah. I think, Linda, you had a story on yeah. this one that would be helpful to look into. So it comes out of John 8. Um, it's sometimes subtitled, The Woman Caught in Adultery. Um, and so this is a story where Jesus is um, back at the temple, and he's teaching, and the Pharisees bring this woman and kind of throw her on the ground in front of her, of in front of Jesus, and she's been caught in the act of adultery. And they kind of question Jesus. They're like, okay, so this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says to stone her, what do you say? So they have thrown it down. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with this woman who has clearly done the wrong thing? And, I mean, it even says they were trying to trap him. You know, <laughs> that was kind of their their thing. Um, and so, you know, Jesus, it says that he bends down. He writes in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. But he kind of says to them, you know, let he who has never sinned throw the first stone. They all kind of go away. (laughs) They can't, you know, because they have all sinned and they know it. But then he's sitting there with this woman and he says, where are your accusers? You know, didn't even one of them condemn you? And she says, no. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So in this story, a lot of times when we tell it, we point to the fact that, like, Jesus loved her and he protected her from these horrible accusers. And, you know, and then we go, and where was the guy? I mean, she was in the act of adultery. Somebody else was involved. He's not there. You know, so, I mean, totally. we yep. go in all kinds of directions with this story. And it is true. He did love her and he did protect her and he did show her dignity by the way that he engaged with her. But in the midst of that, he also said to her, go and sin no more. So did he love her right where she was? Yes. Did he accuse her and condemn her and throw stones at her? No. He accepted her. He loved her. But he also said, hey, I want you to do something different than what you've been doing. I'm calling you to something different. Go and sin no more. Now, we don't have any follow-up on this story at all. We don't know what happened. But this is what, you know, what's recorded does show that Jesus both loved her and accepted her, which, of course, we are to love and accept people. But then there was also a call to change. There was a call to a different way. Yeah. So, you know, right at the core of it, this viewpoint leans into an, um, 
into extreme individualist autonomy, uh, which subjectivizes all sets of values. And Scripture just stands in contrast to that, that yeah. there is absolutely, um, there is one that uh, that's, sets a different standard of good and beautiful and true out of God's character. Absolutely. And, and so that's, the I think, the first bit of contrast from this viewpoint that Scripture just says, no, you aren't God. There is God. Yeah. And all of our understanding of what is good and right and true and beautiful in the world flows from God. And so that's this the start of a challenge to this. Um, and yeah, I think that this, this story with Jesus is so powerful because, like, what we love so much about Jesus is that, gosh, he doesn't throw stones at us. Right that he does embrace us, that at the root of the Christian faith is that we are so jacked up <laughs> and so messed up, we needed God himself to come here and save us. Mm-hmm. That like that is at the root of it. And so we, if you are at a place where you're like, yeah, down with everybody else, and man, you should just be challenging people to get better, and that's what it is, just remember, if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, the start of it was that you were embraced. You were called friend even when you were enemy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the beauty of that is so powerful. And then we have to see the Father saying through Jesus, go and sin no more. This way of living, like a marriage has just been destroyed Mm -hmm. by decisions Mm -hmm. of this person and the other person that is not mentioned. (laughs) and this way of living will result in death and yeah. brokenness and isolation and challenge and all of that. And so we really need to just understand the beauty of that of that dual reality. And scripture has a lot to say about this. You know, uh, Hebrews 12, 6 says, God disciplines those whom he loves. Right. Um, Proverbs 10, 17, one that I've tried to hold to for most of my life is that the wise person heeds correction that if you are wise you're going to be constantly wanting and striving after correction why because that makes you better <laughs> you can learn from correction or you can't right and one of them will mean you stay status quo and the other one means you get better and so scripture is saying like the wise person should heed correction that these are good things that we should lean into the other thing the bible says is there's a way that seems right to a man <laughs> <laughs> and the end is death. And I think that it, this whole view is what seems right to me, what feels right to me. Hey, I'm not hurting anybody. This feels right to me. And I think that we have to remember, like what you're saying, when we get into this space of going, well, this is what feels right. I'm just going to go with it. We need to be open to the fact that the wise also heeds correction. So if I'm going in a direction that I think is right to me and someone offers correction to me, I need to pay attention to that mm-hmm. because I'm very capable of deceiving myself. Yeah. And we see the result of what happens when we take the fruit and we define good and bad for ourselves and we live um, as autonomous selves. And so uh, this was a quick little glimpse of the road I think that we as a culture are walking down Mm -hmm. and um, you know if we paint a picture of what that will be like it'll be people more and more isolated from each other Uh, you lose all opportunity of mentoral relationship where somebody can help somebody else grow in a direction because they're just forcing their opinions on somebody else 
So there's greater isolation. Parenthood becomes more challenging. Marriage becomes more challenging. Society itself becomes more challenging. If there is not a better that we are chasing after together as a society, mm-hmm. we will become more and more um, atomized and mm-hmm. and um, isolated. And so uh, may we not go down this road. Yes. But there is another road, a, a different road of thinking about how we can grow and change. And honestly, this is a space that uh, that Rob is really is really an expert in this field uh, as far as the amount of reading and thinking and living uh, he has done in this space. I know he's opened a lot of our eyes to this space. And so we kind of just want to like, go ahead and take it, Rob. We'll jump in at certain points, but please lead us down a different road. Okay, well, I think one of the things that we need to think about is what is, and this is a favorite word of yours, Brenda, but what's the tell us? What are we after? And what mm-hmm. we're after is character change. We're mm-hmm. after becoming a, a different sort of person. I mean, we're talking about becoming a new creation in many mm-hmm. ways, right? The neurotheologian Dr. James Wilder writes that character reflects what we have learned to be when things get like this. Mm-hmm. So it's that who we are in an instant. Mm. Um, since identity, including character and maturity, runs in a brain system that is faster than conscious thought, the fast track, so the part of the brain that moves the quickest that's happening on the right side actually, produces a reaction to our circumstances before we have a chance to consider how we would rather react. What happens before we have a chance to think about is the source of what we will call character. Our reactions reveal our character. So that old idea of what would Jesus do, like that question, if you have to ask it, it's too late, right? Like you, <laughs> you already, your, your, your brain and your body already made a decision in many ways. So Interesting. Uh, while relationships with others are something we do, it is also true that relationships are what we are. Mm-hmm. So we need social relationships like the body needs oxygen. It's like, like a stone needs a sculptor. Um, we believe people change in and through with other people. So it's simply not enough to acquire new information. That's kind of what we talked about in our first episode, and that was an unclear part of it, right? Information is good, but not enough. Uh, Because information alone, as we talked about last time, it doesn't change us. So we have to have experience. We have to experience new forms. They need to be embodied. They need to be in real time in their, their social interactions. We need to be impacted by different sorts of relational interactions so that Ourself, who we are, and how we are in the world is reshaped, right? A new creation. So this 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 relationship is reciprocal, and that human social behavior is is something that wants to kind of act and be acted upon, right? So there's a, a reciprocity there, but it's also mimetic. Um, in other words, we observe and imitate the behaviors of others as they observe and imitate us. So again, there's even a recipro- reciprocity in the mimetic. And this is getting deep. Yeah, <laughs> it's all right. But, so in the relationships, basically the point is we're jointly we're jointly reformed. Mm-hmm. Okay, in relationships we're jointly reformed. In other words, we need relationships with God and relationships with others. And so a way to say it might be with is the way. And so the idea here is that we want to think about membership versus method. So which which precedes the in those two. 
the question, what must we do? That is a question of method versus who must we join with? Well, that's a question of membership. Right. And membership, you could think about it as the word in, with, attachment, union, allegiance, presence, abide, filled with, incarnational. All of those things speak to membership. And that you can hear already this very different coin that's just flipped. So method, the question of method, is it through knowledge? Is it through the will? Is it through power? Is it through tolerance? Those are methodological questions. Right. And you're saying there's a different way of thinking about that, and that's... It's an anthropological question, actually. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So another way maybe to, to, to frame this might be what we receive and what we acquire. So if we have deficits or we're missing something, so think about what we talked in the last episode, knowledge, habits, willpower, discipline, experiences. If we lack in those areas, we think we can acquire those things and change our character. Right. And we acquire it through our own, it's almost cyclical. You acquire it through going through knowledge and willpower and experiences. That's different, say, than than, um, um, receiving it with God, Mm. right? It's different than being in union with God, abiding in God, attaching to God, becoming a new creation through God, adopted into the family called a son or daughter. So we don't so much as acquire as we receive. We receive an identity by receiving it, by becoming it, this new creation, not acquiring it. Which again goes back to the garden. That's right. Uh, what was this? The word was like reach out or snatch, which is really this idea of I'm acquiring, I'm grabbing. Mm-hmm. And um, I think even Eve, when uh, Cain is born, is I, the Hebrew is like, I've acquired a son. Yeah. And, you know, there's something about the, if you just think about the posture of reaching out and grabbing for yourself versus open handedly receiving, it's a totally different posture. Mm-hmm. One of them requires. Another party. Mm. See, that's it. That's where the secret is. Well, not the secret. I mean, it's it's the fabric of the universe. It is the Trinity. The Trinity has always been in union and presence with each other. Right. So when you think about love, you're thinking about this thing that is um, humbling and submissive to each other and always in connection and relation with each other, always present with each other. And I think you could make an argument. We're sort of segueing here, but... I think you could make an argument that the entire narrative arc of the Bible is this thing of God's presence with us. So mm-hmm. he is present to himself in the Trinity. He is present in creation. He is present in the garden. Mm-hmm. He is present in the temple. He is present in the tabernacle. You, you could make the argument even that much of the Le- uh, Mosaic and Levitical law is how do you live in the presence sure. of God? Not how does it get you to the presence, but how do you live in the presence sure. of God? And then you go on, the, the incarnation, right? And then the indwelling of the Spirit in us. And finally, Jesus saying, hey, I will be with you until the end of the age. And what's at the end of the age? More Jesus, more yeah. presence, more with him for always. So I think the Bible is speaking to this idea. Um, and so let's so let's let's contrast then a little bit. Let's kind of go back and, and contrast a little bit with the, the enlightenment view of change. The enlightenment view of change was the idea that we had to know certain things that we, we have a perspective from it, that it would change our belief about something, which would generate habits, which would, would become our character. So sure. for Christians, the, the enlightenment view would have been, hey, here's what the Bible says. This is why God said it. 
So now you should believe that and make make a convictional belief about that. And then that will create new habits, and those new habits will just make you a new person. And there's nothing wrong with those things. It is literally almost mapping out what we talked about in our last episode. All good things. Mm-hmm. All necessary things. Incomplete. Yeah. Right. So it's just incomplete. It's not a bad thing. It's not a wrong thing. It's an incomplete thing. It's, it's what happens if we over-focus on any of those things. So ask yourself this. If you read every book on love, would you be loving? Probably not. Right. If you, so that's, you know, knowledge. So knowledge of love does not make you loving. How about perspective? The, the world is filled with perspective on diet, exercise, health. You understand. You also understand you're not doing it. Right. right. So like, <laughs> like um, and what about conviction? It's like, well, yeah, I believe all those things. I believe patience is a fruit of the spirit. You know, do you believe it? But do you do it? You know, are you patient in the moment, in the heartbeat when that person cuts you off? Are you patient? So the conviction piece, right? You believe you should love your enemies, right? The Bible says that. Do you do it? Okay, so that's a habit. Habit is what we repeatedly do in, it's not sometimes, it's not occasionally. So do you habitually love your enemies? Or what about character, that that end? The sum of our habits, so some of us are like Jesus, and some of us are more like our iPhones, right? Like, (laughs) that's... So do we naturally exude the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience? Do you naturally do that, right? That does not come through knowledge, habit, or power and experience. It's coming from somewhere else. So when God said that we should love God, others, and ourselves with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he was saying, I know how I designed you. God has a perfect understanding of our anthropology, like our genesis, the nature, and future of humans. And our teleology, our ends, our purpose, and our function. He designed us, and how God designed us bears on how we change. So the question is then, if that's true, how did he design us? Because right. if, if we know how he designed us, we know how we might change. So let's look at how the brain was designed. There's two sides, left and right. I think we all know that. Left brain discipleship would emphasize beliefs, doctrine, willpower, and strategy. Good things, incomplete things. Right brain, however, and this is one that for most people is very new. Mm-hmm. Right brain would talk about things like loving attachments, joy and emotional development, group identity, and individual identity. Mm-hmm. So again, we need both. But we have clearly emphasized, I think, one over the other, um, especially as we look back to the first episode. We have been a, a left brain dominant culture, Western culture. Um, so we might want to spend some time figuring out how to do some right brain discipleship. Um, and when and when we say discipleship here, we're talking about just in the in the ways we think about growing, right? Like that's right. Just the way we think about changing. So left brain change, we say, comes through beliefs. That's knowledge. Doctrine. That's knowledge. Willpower. That's the like making the right decisions. Strategies. Power. That's that's what we've tried to do. Is this left brain thing? And in a lot of ways because we started with these enlightenment philosophers and that's where a lot of this came from. These were extremely left-brained individuals. That's right. I think therefore I am, right? Yeah. <laughs> but what happens if your body already made the decision before you actually had the thought? Yep. <laughs> and, so and that and that's the Descartes, the big picture there was an individual sitting in a chair by himself uh, rather than working this through in community. Mm-hmm. Like already right there is a difference. Exactly. Exactly. So, 
if we move to the right side, what happens on the right side is not conscious. It's what's called pre-conscious thought. It's, and that is actually the place that is the driver of character change. It's not our conscious willpower. So right brain questions might be, who is happy to see me here? What do I feel right now? Is there anyone here who understands me? How do I act like myself right now? Who are my people? And what would my people do in this situation? So let's, let's look at John 17. Jesus speaking to the Father in verses 21 and 22. He says, I pray for them all to be joined together as one, even as you and I, Father, are joined together as one. I pray for them to become one with us so that the world recognize that you sent me. For the very glory you have given to me, I have given to them so that they will be joined together as one and experience the same unity we enjoy. If we lived as if that was true, that we are joined together with Jesus, what do you suspect our habits might look like? John 14, 23 says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And then in the next verse, he says, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. In both cases, the key to obedience is love. Mm -hmm. It's relation. It's attachment. It's connection. God is love. God creates us out of love. And lovers, or worshipers maybe you could say, is who we are meant to be. We are imagers of a Trinitarian God named Yahweh. Love is our attachment to someone or something. The means of shaping attachment is apprenticeship. The nature of attachment is grace. The emotion of that attachment is joy. The shape of the attachment is group and individual identity. The actions of attachment are habits. And the fruits of our attachment is character, changed character. So again, attachment, emotion, identity, habit, character. This is how we do the way because it is a with way. All right, so let's, let's dig a little deeper now into each one of these things then. So attachment, to become a disciple isn't something we drift into. It is someone or something we attach to. Yeah, that's an interesting thought to think, right? Yeah. We so don't talk a lot about of attachment in church. We Yeah. So attachment is the beginning of identity change. It's not knowledge. It's not doing more or making better choices. It's not the power of technique or method or model. An attachment in our brain, we are born coming out looking for someone, not for something. We're come we come looking out for someone. Mm-hmm. So that's how God designed us, right? We are when we're born again, we come out looking for someone, mm. right? So who are we looking for? Um, attachment is the strongest force in the human brain. It's not an emotion. It's something, it's something you feel, you sense it, uh, and it runs very deep in your brain. But the thing is, it's below your willful control. Mm. So our personal attachments to Jesus and others have a more powerful effect on our behavior than anything we could do. Any, any of the things we talked about in terms of how, how we think you change Attachment is more powerful than all of those. Um, it's more powerful than knowledge. It's more powerful than habit. Um, so attachment is simply just the best word that scientists can come with that describes like the glue that holds people together. Um, it produces enduring care and well-being for another. It's so you see that like impa- that's why parents are attached to their kids, right? And a lot of the like scientific uh, study around attachment began with kids in orphanages. Is that right? Yeah, a lot of it came from that, like seeing the differences. Um, And so even adoption is a part of my story. Um, My wife and I uh, have adopted. 
And one of the things you spend a lot of time learning is attachment and understanding attachment and understanding uh, the bonds that are created and how those bonds are created. And it's so hardwired into our brain, if I remember the research, that uh, if you don't have someone to attach to as a baby and growing up. Yeah, you have failure to thrive syndrome. Which could mean death at certain points, right? Or major, major psychological, because our brain is so wired towards Yes, as, as imagers made in God's image, we are made for attachment. Uh, because that is the image of God. He is attachment, right? That so that part is just so uh, part of who we are. It's it's just the thumbprint of of Jesus on us as we are made to be attached to others. We come out looking for others. Um, yeah, and there's something there's something beautiful when you talk about like the the growth process when you start following Jesus. That God in all of His wisdom, when He was going to lay out a telos, an, an end goal for us, it wasn't. Uh, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Even the Levitical laws, like you said, were about being in the presence and living in the presence of God. And so what a beautiful picture in, in the Christian uh, practice that our telos is not a set of rules or even behaviors. It's a person. Mm-hmm. It's a person. Mm-hmm. And persons, you know, because he's wanting us to attach with each other. That's the Great right. commandment, right? So when you think about, okay, so if someone is attached, what type of things do you typically see? One thing that you'll see when people are attached is that they're motivated to be near the person they're attached to. So when we're attached to Jesus, when we're attached to people in our small group, when we're attached to our spouse, to our kids, we want to be with them. Or a celebrity. Or a celebrity. Or an experience. Mm. Or mm-hmm. a substance. That's right. Right. An individual tends to experience distress when separated from the attachment figure. Right. Um, thank goodness God's like, well, I'll be, be with you. Here's the Holy right. Spirit. You know, <laughs> so you don't have to worry about that part. But we in our human relationships can, can experience that. And also these substitute attachments, this is where we see are all around us people struggling with addiction and what it means. To, that's why it's so hard to break away from something because your brain is attached to it your brain doesn't want to be separated from it. Right. And I think in the original attachment research, they created, they found that what the child's attachment to their caregiver or parent determined in a lot of ways how people began to perceive God. So if, if you felt safe and attached to your original caregiver, then you could feel safe and attached to God. But if you felt abandoned or if you felt like they were not dependable or if you felt like they were not going to be a safe place for you, a safe refuge for you, or a safe, what they'd call like a base of operations where you could go and explore and come back. If you didn't have that with your caregiver, you also wouldn't have that with God. So a lot of times when we're talking about attaching to God and we're talking about um, these behaviors that that you're describing as attached behavior, sometimes when we talk about this, we're fighting internally attachment like poor attachment that happened in our family of origin. Mm -hmm. And so that can be really challenging for us because when God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, we're like, yeah, okay, but my experience says people do leave. Mm -hmm. So is it really safe to attach to you? I don't know. Yes, all of us have had things that didn't happen that should have happened to us or that did happen that shouldn't have happened to us. Right. Um, And those impact our attachments. Um, So the final two also, and Linda, you alluded to this, is, the individual can look at the attachment figure as a place of safety from which they can, you know, um, 
be with when there's crisis, and also they can be connected to this person and move out and feel like they can explore the world around them. Now, in the Bible, you see attachment everywhere. Once you once you see it, you can't not see it. It's yeah, everywhere. You can't unsee it. Uh, and there's a Hebrew word for this called hesed, um, and it just simply means steadfast love, uh, great love, loyal kindness, faithful love. Um, so a hesed community is bound together by strong and lasting at- attachments. Um, so you could think about in the Old Testament hesed word, maybe the New Testament version of that would be kind of agape love. And if you're interested in that, uh, we have the found episode called What is Love? Parentheses, baby, don't hurt me. Uh, and Mama. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that dives deep into Hesed and Agape. Yeah. So again, so quicker than we're aware of, actually it's one-sixth of a second, you and I process information, and quicker than we are aware of, that information reaches the attachment center of our brain. It's interesting that God designed the brain and the place where all information and stimulus first enters is the attachment center of the brain. So, again, God knew what he was doing. So this means that who or what we are attached to at any given moment influences how we process and respond to information. If our attachment is with Jesus, if it's strong and secure, our brains process that input in light of our connection with Jesus. If you're not attached to Jesus or you are strongly attached to something else, all that information and stimulus gets filtered through those things. So another word to maybe think about this is abide. Mm-hmm. It's the Greek word meno. So think uh, to remain, not to depart, to continue to be present, to remain as one, not to become another or different. It's union with, together, fellowship, dwell, in, communion, attachment. And man, those words are all over the New Testament. It's everywhere. Um, okay, so then the, the other thing we talked about is then a grace-based attachment. So what sort of attachment do we have with Jesus? It's a grace-based attachment. And grace is a relational truth that you and I experience in the context of face-to-face interactions with others. So charis, the word, the Greek word for grace, uh, we all know that in one way that means undeserved favor, but Actually, it translates in another way uh, to mean relationally and practically that you and I are special and favorite. And if that's coming from God, we are special and favorite to God, and we don't have to earn it. So in other words, because we are God's favorite, because we, because of God's unlimited capacity, we can all be God's favorite at the same time. So, and as God's favorite, think about what that means. If you're God's favorite, if, if Abba Father is, and you're the favorite, man, he wants to be with you all the time. He's excited about you, and his attention is always on you, and he's just like, oh, I am wrapped with love for you. Uh, so far exceeding that one salvation moment where we receive Jesus, grace is a new way to live because it is ongoing. Mm-hmm. We're meant to be in joy. It's, it's a joyful response to that shared love. It's experiencing life as God's favorite, and that draws us into deeper and deeper connection with him. So as we become like Jesus on the inside, grace will overflow as we interact with the world, and we begin to see others around us as special and favorite too. So when Jesus says, hey, love others, mm-hmm. right? Well, it's we're giving them grace in a sense, and we begin to see them as special and favorite the way that God sees them as special and favorite. And if you want to learn to love an enemy, start thinking them as special and favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the signature of grace, um, 
in relationships. This is tied, uh, I think it's helpful to kind of think about the Roman, Roman culture's view of grace at the time Paul's writing around the word grace. So grace was always experienced in relationships. Well, that was interesting. And it's always an invitation to relationship. So grace, again, like we know it's unmerited favor in one way, but I guess what we're finding is like grace was, if you look at it through the Roman cultural lens of the time Paul's writing, is that it's relational. Um, it's an invitation into relationship. In Paul's day, if you wanted to be in a relationship with one someone, you sent them a gift. You sent them a grace. The gift demonstrated the purpose of entering into an ongoing, and that's important, it's not just one moment, ongoing relationship with that individual. If the person received the gift, it meant that he or she intentionally agreed to enter into relationship with me. So grace means that the God of the universe is pursuing an ongoing intentional relationship with you. Grace is the God-given gift of an intended, unearned relationship with him as his special and favorite son or daughter. The grace given to believers in connection with our Lord Jesus Christ, he who gave himself. The grace that believers receive is identified as a gift. So think of it as a gift. That moment was a gift event. It was like a Christmas, right? You got a present. You opened it and you received it, and Christmas never ended. Right? So we can think about that gift-giving, that moment where we enter into this special ongoing relationship with God as his favorite as a superabundance. So that's kind of thinks about the scale and the quality of the gift. Um, there's a singularity to it. It's kind of like it, it, it idealizes the benevolence of the giver's um, sole mode of operation of them giving us this thing um, and us receiving. There's a priority, the focusing of the gifts, timing, um, before the recipient even has even acts, it creates kind of an incongruity, which emphasizes the mismatch between the gift and the worthiness. So there doesn't have to be, I don't have to be as good as Jesus to receive the gift of Jesus. And aren't we grateful right? for this? And it, there's an efficacy, right? That that grace gift has an ability to change things for the better. And there's a non-circularity in, in a sense in that I don't have to give anything in return, right? It was unmerited It was a gift given. Um, I did not have to earn it. So the cross itself represents a gift of Christ. Christ gives himself as a gift of love. The grace is free. It's unconditioned. It's not cheap, though. There are expectations and obligations, and those who have received it are to remain within it. It's ongoing. It's ongoing relationship. And because of that, our lives are altered by new habits, new dispositions, and new practices of grace, such that they should attach through grace to others. Right? This is the relational component. Mm-hmm. Love others as we have been loved. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting piece there on the idea that grace is um, unconditional, but it costs something. I'm a big Bonhoeffer fan, and he talks <laughs> about the value of costly grace. But it's interesting when it's seen in a relational reality because it both has obligations, but the idea of like, oh, man, well, I got to do some stuff to earn. It's like earn goes out the window. Yeah. It's not about earning. And I think Dallas Willard says uh, there's difference between earning and effort. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in that quote he says uh, grace is about more than the forgiveness of sins alone. And, uh, you know, I think there's something beautiful there about um, 
I'm stepping in a relationship. Now, sometimes I think in the church we say, hey, it's not about some religion, a bunch of tasks to do. It's about a relationship. So it's about a relationship with God. And so, right. man, say this prayer. And then people are like, awesome. I want to step in a relationship with God. And then they don't talk to him for another, you know, six months until Christmas or something. You well, know, <laughs> it's it, like we say relationship, we uplift relationship. But if you push deep into that reality and actually grab hold of like, what are we actually saying there? It's something very, very different. Yeah. And it just, you know, as you were kind of wrapping up that point, you were talking about that as we attach to Jesus, we do develop habits. We do have different things that we think about and believe. So those pieces that we talked about before do come into focus, but we don't start there. They come out of our relationship and our attachment to Jesus. And so it's like we do get to that place, but it, it we arrive there differently. And I think that this is what's so revolutionary about this is that a lot of times to what you were just saying, Brandon, we say, oh, it's all about relationship. And then what we do is we give people checklists of tasks and tell them this is how you're going to have a relationship with God. And the disconnect ends up being that people think that they've done all these tasks so they have a relationship with God, so they're attached. Yeah, it's, it's like if you give your little kids like a, like a crown or a, like a tiara or something and say, you're a prince or you're a princess, and they begin to act out, but they act out of who they now are. Right. right. I, I am a prince. I am a princess. Well, that's what this is what princesses and princesses do. You didn't have to teach them anything. They just they just start like living right. that out. And that is that grace gift. Right. Yeah. That grace gift helps create relationship. But the relationship <laughs> is forming identity. Right. And because I am a princess. Now I will behave differently. Now I will do different things. Now I have different power. We get that in that context. But right. somehow in our relationship with God. Look, we're back at Frozen. All right, let's keep them <laughs> Sorry. Right. Let's so, keep them so, so the nature then of this relationship creates an emotion. Sure. And, and we want to get familiar with this idea of joy because joy is fundamentally a relational experience. Joy requires other people. Mm. You can't experience joy without another person present or without at least thinking about another person. So grace-based attachments changes the brain through the power of joy. Right, so God said, let brilliant light shine out of darkness. Is the one who cascaded his light into us, the brilliant dawning light of glorious knowledge of God as we blaze into the face of Jesus Christ. That joy is the feeling of knowing that someone looks at you and is happy to be with you. I think there's actually a well episode on this where Brandon talks about the work of a psychologist, Alan Shore, who is... Uh, a big researcher on the idea of how joy is related to that. We come out looking for joy, and uh, I would encourage you to listen to that. Links will be in the show notes. Yeah. So the, this is so I'm talking about the UCLA neuro researcher, Dr. Alan Shore. So he would tell us that develop that a, attachment develops through joy. So when we are truly glad to be with someone, the energy of that joy strengthens our attachment. And when we share joy, we become attached. We both smile. So joy knows that you're the sparkle in someone's eye that lets you know they're happy and glad to be with you. So God designed our brains to run on joy, the same as like a car runs on fuel. Our brains desire joy. As we go through our day, our right brain is scanning our surroundings and is looking for people who are happy to be with us. God wanted Israel to know he was looking at them and he was glad to be with them. Look at number 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. 
the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Jesus looks at us and wants us to have peace. Jesus is gracious to us. The Lord's face was looking at them, right? Look, Psalm 16, you will make known to me the way of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. So joy is the emotion of grace. It's the emotion of attachment. It's primarily primarily transmitted through the face, especially the eyes, and then also through the voice. It's relational. Again, it's, it's what it feels like to, when you know someone's happy to be with you. And it's important to God because it, f- it has some benefits. When joy helps us regulate our emotions, it helps us endure suffering, and it's even connected to dopamine. In other words, we feel joy in our body. This is the idea of what I call the chemical dance. So we have joy, which is dopamine, uh, and then we have quiet, um, that serotonin that comes from knowing that someone's glad to be with us, that we're not alone, so we can rest and relax. So if you think about being able to rest and relax, Knowing that someone is glad to be with you, knowing that someone is protecting you or watching over you, I mean, that is like, oh, you can rest easy in Jesus' arms. Well, that can release serotonin. So you have the, dop- the dopamine of joy, the serotonin of that quiet trust, and uh, those are very powerful emotions in the body. And so whenever we're feeling difficult, pain or painful emotions or difficult emotions, anytime that shame or anger, disgust, sadness, anxiety, fear, despair come up, we can look to the face of Jesus and return to joy. So that ability to return to joy is predicated on the presence and attachment to Jesus. Um, Now, what we know, and we've been talking about a little through this show, is that sometimes we attach to other things, right? So the author Ed Curry, in his book, Becoming a Face of Grace, uses something called beeps or pseudo-grace. And the beeps stand for behaviors events, experiences, people, and substances. And so what happens is we use these things instead of God's relational grace. We use these things to create the dopamine and the serotonin to regulate our emotions. Um, And so those become pseudo-grace, false grace in a way. All right, so now this leads us, if we're kind of traveling up the, the right side of the brain as we are, we into the place of identity. We've talked a little about this so far. But identity develops through loving attachments. We only allow those we are attached to to shape our identity. And I could say we only allow those things, those false things or or poor things that we're attached to to shape our identity. But something is shaping our identity, and it's whatever we're attached to. So when we have hesed, we we give that thing we have hesed with, that person that we have agape love with, we give them access to our character. So... That grace-based, ongoing relationship that I'm attached to gets to help be a part of shaping my, my identity. And this is important in one sense as we think about group identity. So group identity focuses less on what we believe and more on this question. Group identity focuses on, as followers of Jesus, what kind of people are we? How do the people of God act? The important things to the people I'm attached to become important to me. Mm-hmm. So this, you see this like gangs, you see this in fraternities, right. you see this in political groups, whatever the thing that, whatever the group of people you are attached to, what the things are important to them become important to you because it's att- you're at that depth of a level. And goodness sakes, if we're honest about the things that I think are discipling 
people the most in our world today. Yeah, it's these uh, these tri- tribal communities, mm-hmm. uh, whatever they are, whether it's a, a Disney park fans you know uh, we just went to disney world and goodness sakes there's this whole micro culture oh yeah of crazy disney park fans and you know what like that community is so um so homogenous mm-hmm. in its value sets language care like things that excite them and so when you look at like you look across the board like what is the best thing to shape somebody into a certain type of person Mm-hmm. It isn't that gym. It isn't that, you know, 30-day workout routine. It's not that even that great message. It's a community that has a certain set of values. And, that, gosh, those value sets, we just, you can tell. Like, well, and you're a part of this group, aren't you? And when stress or pressure or disorientation of any kind happens, it becomes very apparent what you are attached to. You may think you're attached to one thing, but... When stress comes, it reveals what you're attached to. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not what you thought you were. <laughs> yeah. So you look at, you know, Israel being led by God through the desert for 40 years. He's shaping a new kind of group identity. And it's a group identity based on his presence, right? So if you're talking about how do people change, well, he's changing these people to come out of slavery for 400 years yeah. and is shaping them with his presence, mm. right? So it's it's... Jesus spent three years with his disciples. He's shaping a new group identity, a new kind of people, and he's doing it with his presence. So, you know, you look at Jesus and, and the 12, it's like, you know, lepers, run. Nope, not, not, that's not how we are now, right? right. The Samaritans, call down some thunder. Nope, that's not how we are, right? <laughs> women, uh, no, women, come on. Um, <laughs> No, we have to buy food. No, we have money. No, we have to say, like, it's just this whole thing, like, oh, don't have dinner with tax collectors. No, bring them all on in, right? You know, prostitutes, that's really awkward, Jesus. It's like, no, it's not. Uh, we will be here to help them change through our presence. Uh, children, gross. Get away, kids. It's like, no, let them come to us. Like, again, our presence, my presence with you for these 12 guys is changing them, and it starts to change everything about their character. Mm-hmm. Um so we as followers of Jesus are the kind of people who do this or that, and it's based on our attachment and identity to Jesus. So the question is, what kind of people are we, and how do our people act? And then this tells us what our individual identity will come. So our individual identity flow, flows from the, the group identity. So we talked about you know being in the military, sports teams, those certain things are very um, shaping of our individual identity because our, our, our identity center is designed to help us respond consistently with who we understand ourselves to be. And that's based on who we understand those who we are close with to be. So our personal identity is shaped by our group identity. And the funny thing about this, going to the previous road, um, first off, when you think about attachment, the absolute necessity of other of whoever the other is that we're attached to. And then you have this um, enlightenment individualism that results in extreme um, autonomy. And that's a lie. It's just a lie. We, we think we can function, function as autonomized selves, people who just have our own standards, our own ways of living. It's just me. I'm an island. And what's funny and sad and whatever in all of this space is that when you think about the world of that we're in right now of, man, you just got to accept me for me and I'm a unique individual 
and I'm looking within for what is right and wrong, it's like, actually, you are not looking within. You think you are, but you are actually deeply defined by whatever community you are a part of. Right. Mimetic. Absolutely. Right. So mimetic, Mimitating. again, the idea, think about the word meme, it's something that can catch on quickly that people look at and then they just start to imitate. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And it, it's this picture of like on the playground where one kid likes that yellow ball. Nobody liked that yellow ball before, but one kid wants to start playing with it. So another kid wants to start playing with it. Suddenly the value of that yellow ball has gone through the roof. Everybody wants to play with that yellow ball. Right. Because they see other people want it. Mimetic. Yeah. So one way to think about then group identity and individual identity is being in union with, right? So New Testament professor Constantine Campbell uses this four-part explanation of union. He talks about that there is, um, one, there's this mutual indwelling. It's kind of like think about marriage, the bridegroom kind of ideas. But also there's a participation. So it, it conveys a partaking in the events of Christ's narrative. Well, Substitute out Christ with anything, and now you know that this is how people get in union with something, attached to something. Mm-hmm. Um, incorporation. It encapsulate, encapsulates the, the corporate dimension of being of membership in Christ's body or whatever the thing is you're attached to. And identification. Uh, the believer's location in the realm of Christ and their allegiance to his lordship, or sadly, whatever the other thing is you're giving allegiance and lordship to. So... Union and participation are similar to attachment and emotional attunement. You have incorporation, which is a similar to group identity, and identification, which is similar again to group and individual identity. Okay, so now we've arrived at habit. Again, habit, what we repeatedly do, we all know we have them. Um, but many of our habits are coming out of our group identity. So our habits, maybe you didn't, we didn't know until this moment, but your habits are being shaped by what you're attached to. Um, when you look at your habits and dig down to the base, you will see that you are attached to someone or something in any given moment, and that has a lot to do with how you're expressing your habits. So let's think about being attached to Jesus. What sorts of habits would you have if you knew you were a new creation? What are the new creation habits? Uh, what are the habits of a resurrected one? What are the habits of one crucified and raised and glorified with Christ? What are, what are those habits? What are the habits of the righteousness of God in Christ? What do those habits look like? What do the habits of a son of God through faith in Christ look like? Uh, That would be some interesting family habits right there, right? (laughs) What, What do the habits of the children of God look like, right? So again, we are who we believe we are, right? We will always act out of who we believe we are. And a left brain view of habit would conclude that we need to obey to prove we love Jesus, but a right brain view of habit would conclude we need to love and receive his love, attachment, presence, union, abiding, all the words, and we will be able to obey out of our identity. Which is so we will obey out of who we are. It's such a different motivation. It's a different starting point, and you get a different result. That's right. Again, both are necessary, but right. one was incomplete and one was overemphasized. Yep. Right? So God designed the brain to operate on the right side first from attachment. The other side of the bride brain is still operating, but it just so happens that God designed it to ha- operate from the right side first, which is a re- attachment, relational, emotional, those things at work. And so now we arrive at character. Character, maybe we should think of it as our instantaneous reactions to our surroundings 
created before we're even aware of it, before our mind is conscious of it. It's our gut reaction. It's your first response. It's faster than conscious thought. So when you think about something like fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, you, you don't often pause to say, mm, how will I be, how will I be loving? How am I going to think my way into love? Uh, how am I, how am I going to habit myself into love here? Um, so again, character formation is governed on the right side, not the left. So character is formed when we, when we answer the question, what would my people do now that would reflect our deepest values and maintain all our important relationships? Mm-hmm. So again, even in the asking, what would I do? It's connecting back to presence and relationship and attachment. Right. So character formation then develops out of our community, the people that we call my people, mm-hmm. right? God's people, the family of God. Our loving attachments and values of community drive our character. So maybe we could say in Augustine's words, you are what or who you love. Yeah. This is why, man, in Christian practice um, up to this point, the value of gathering together. You know, I think we can easily fall into the pattern of, man, we're going to listen to this sermon, uh, and then I'm going to go home. And what I got out of it was a really good TED Talk. And it's like, no, actually in the Christian practice, what actually was more valued even than the sermon was the togetherness. Mm -hmm. It was this remembering of this is who we are. This is our history as we dig into Scripture. This is our story together as a community, and that is this deeply shaping thing. More than that really good point or that really uh, great encouragement you received, it's the togetherness and the being reminded that you are part of this this body. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is this deeply shaping reality for us. That's right. So I, I think as we kind of wrap this, I think just Jesus intends his church to function as a family that's bonded together with grace based right? Ongoing relationship. You as my favorite has said based joy based. I see you. I'm smiling at you. Attachments of love. Those attachments shape our group identity. We are the people of God, right? We are Jesus followers. And that shapes our individual identity, who I am. I'm a son or daughter of God Mm -hmm. and I'm filled and indwelt with Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. And that then shapes my habits. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the collection of all of those shapes my character. It determines my character. So maybe we could say that the difference between the easy path of gathering information about Jesus versus a lifetime journey of actually getting to know, attach, and live in the presence of Jesus. That's a different thing. And I think that is what we could say is what we mean by with is the way. Wow. (laughs) Got to kind of take it in for a minute. Um, Brandon, do you have anything that, I mean, I just want to sit with that for a minute because it's such a different paradigm. I mean, I've grown up in the church. I've been walking with Jesus for 40 years. And I remember as a team when we first started talking about joy and attachment and has said and all those things it was so radically different and I'm imagining for the people listening it's almost like it's just like a whole brand new lens you know like the glasses in national treasure you know where you put the different lenses down and you see entirely different things it's like this is a whole new way of looking at discipleship and so I'm just I'm excited for people to kind of dig into this 
Yeah, it makes me think uh, as you're as you're wrestling with this. Uh, if you're listening to this episode, it's likely because you are thinking, "Man, I would like to grow and I would like to change." And uh, you've probably put in a lot of effort in these different spaces to um, get more knowledge. You read that book, and then you did those life hacks, and you know, in in some way, you've um, you've tried to seek some power that is bigger than you and. And maybe you've gotten to the point of like, man, maybe I just can't change and I just need to leave that for, for what it is. I think what's so beautiful about this is, uh, about this approach, this with is the way, is just to remember um, it's not you alone. Mm-hmm. This, isn't, this isn't you on some individualistic enlightenment journey towards better. This is you as a member of the human race, uh, creations of God, you as a member of the body of Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, not growing into some objective set of rules and standards saying, you know, a good person is this or that, but you're growing more and more in this loving relationship with your creator yeah. and with those that are around you. That's that's a different picture and a different end goal Yeah, that in some ways is so much more broad and challenging but in so many ways it's much more simple and relational yeah and it's liberating almost yeah. because when you look at the christian life as all of these things you need to do to be holy or to measure up to whatever this objective standard is it can be overwhelming but when you start with just being with jesus and being with his people and and uh, growing in that love relationship. And out of that, these things, you know, obedience flows from attachment. So I want to do these things because I love Jesus. You know what I mean? Versus I'm going to do these things and prove I love him. Mm. That's just a whole different way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Because when it, it's about me and proving that I love God, then it's all on me. It's focused on me. <laughs> and that's not how it's supposed to, you know, that's a very dangerous starting point. Yeah, maybe we could say that, Part of the way we change, and maybe a primary way we change, is is when we use knowledge and we use habits and we use experiences uh, and we welcome people in initially tolerating and just accepting people for right where they're at. But we pursue relational attachment with God and with others and that all of the spiritual practice we think about, we should maybe we should rename them as love practices mm. because in the end, what we're trying to do is become better lovers, better worshipers right. of God. <clears throat> and those things will ultimately transform us at the deepest, deepest levels of identity. So discipleship is really change into love. Mm. More loving, becoming love. God is love. And we're on the journey with him, attached to him, filled with him, and others becoming more loving every day and that will ultimately shape character lovely well we uh we're so glad that you've listened to uh this episode of found thank you so much for joining us on this two-part journey um we we love you we're praying for you and we'll uh we'll be connecting with you again soon